Good morning. My name is Bill Job, and I am uh, one of the original Jobs, uh, like Oak Ridge people. I was born here in a long, long time ago. Graduated from high school in '66. Was not a believer then, uh, but our connection to to this church is primarily through Dave and Sandy initially. They invited us to do a Bible study after Kitty and I had been pastoring in Morristown, uh, I would say unsuccessfully for two years. It uh, had its own challenges. We moved back to Oak Ridge, and uh, they had a community Bible study Friday night. Is that correct? And they were so gracious that, uh, by way of background, there was a knock on the door one night, and a lady came in who had gone to high school with me. And she peeked her head around the corner and she said, I just came to see if it was really true. Did Bill Joe become a Christian? <laughs> so she went on to tell my wife that when I walked down the halls in high school, people would back up against the lockers and make a way for me. So apparently there was a significant transformation for which we're all grateful. <laughs> so I became a believer out in California in the Navy. And uh, then I got uh, finished up a degree in philosophy out there. I flunked out of the University of Tennessee twice uh, before I went into the Navy, so I didn't have a real academic background. I uh, ended up pastoring the largest Chinese church in the world outside of China in 75 in San Francisco, 74. And then Katie and I moved for a uh, seminary up in Portland, Oregon. We finished up there and then moved back to Oak Ridge around 79 and then up to Morristown for a couple of years. So our primary connection was six or seven year community Bible study teaching on Friday nights. And uh, it really was a, a true blessing. And then when we went to China, uh, that kind of core group disbanded and reassembled. And so a lot of our connections were with the origin of this church through friendships and, and that sort of thing. So we feel connected. It's an honor to be here today. We're very grateful, but honestly, I need to say, it's been a long time since I've spoken in a church. I mean, in a church service. Uh, I, like, I go to church, but I don't, uh, I, I'm not usually the speaker. Uh, I'm involved in what's called a business as mission sort of movement around the world, and I've been invited to speak for the last, really, 15 years or so all over the world, in Turkey and Thailand and Egypt and... Uh, Morocco, not Morocco, but uh, one of those other places. You got all good countries. You know, Tenegro, Montenegro. That was nice. And so uh, my realm of kind of understanding the gospel now got birthed out of starting a company in China. So we feel like the Lord sent us to China. We moved there with our two kids. They were six and eight years old. And this was in, nine, in 1987. We actually moved. Uh, we put them in Chinese public school the first week we got there. So that was the year I lost the Father of the Year nomination. <laughs> that was kind of tough. But we figured if, the, if we're going to be successful, the kids have to succeed. They need friends. They need language. And so we just dumped them in school. And they did well. They survived for a couple of years that way. We didn't really have a business plan. We didn't really have uh, an organization behind us because doing business in foreign countries that were close to the gospel wasn't really a common thing back then. And it took the organizations a, a while to kind of catch up with the idea. But we got a company started, and I thought that would be great because now I have a visa and have an identity in a closed country. And uh, the Lord then, as I was telling the Sunday school class, 
just went through this process of letting me know that every idea I had when I went there on how to do ministry turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and I had to go through this process of re-education, just letting him take an idea and rework it to a better idea. And if I hadn't been flexible, we would never have survived. I was telling the group earlier that I wanted to serve God with my company, and the Lord says, I, a lot of people think that, and he's not opposed to it, but it's not very good. He says, because if it's your company, then you're the primarily responsible for it. He says, that actually gets much better if you would steward my company for me. We can do that together, and then I'm the limit to the resource you have rather than you being the limit to the resource you have. And so I began this process of actually redefining the gospel. It's, it's kind of that big of a thing. Uh, my whole definition of the Christian experience got turned upside down because I went with a typical American idea. Now, because I'm from the U.S., I'm considered American, right? So I get my kingdom understanding and my ministry understanding from the States. One of the things I learned by living overseas is that every culture has some... Can I stand out here? Is this okay? I feel like I'm behind something. I was So every culture has some advantages and disadvantages relative to understanding the kingdom. So some of our cultural things will be good, but some of them may be not so good. And it's a great exercise to try to figure out what cultural norms fit in the kingdom and which ones do not so that I can begin to put filters up and kind of isolate that. I noticed this when I went to Thailand on a, a particular Tuesday over there. Looks like half the people wore yellow. It was obvious. And so I was asking around, why do you guys all wear yellow? And they go, oh, it's the king's color. The king's color. Yeah, like he was born on a Tuesday or something, so every Tuesday we wear his color because we honor our king. And I became aware, I got no culture like that. Matter of fact, in our culture, we always fight kings. <laughs> we resist them. We rebel because we want, what, what is it that we want? independence. We celebrate independence. Now, there's, there's like historical things, and that's not what we're talking about. But the historical reality of being taught to rebel against a king now impacts my ability as a Christian to manage a king. Now I've got me a king, but I've only been trained to uh, resist him. The Thai people have been taught to honor their king. So when they become a Christian, it's easier for them to respond to the kingship of God. Because kings are good. In my history, kings are bad, right? I mean, if we speak honestly about it, you know, we resist them all. And so now I got me a king, and I don't know what to do with him. And that becomes a cultural tension. And so I think by looking around at what I learned to do and others do, we kind of turn him into a consultant. We let his words be important, but not actually control us or buy us. We, we kind of see them optional. Love my enemy. Gosh, that's a great idea. <laughs> How do you actually do that? In our factory, we uh, on Tuesdays had a, a break for 20 minutes, and we decided for a while to have prayer time for any believers, voluntary, who wanted to come, but the only thing you prayed for on Thursdays was your enemies. And it, it turned out to take maybe three to four weeks before Christians could do that. Because the first week, they spent all the time praying that God would change them. <laughs> and the second week, that God would move them. <laughs> and those things are illegal. 
You can't pray for your enemy to be changed or to be moved. You only pray for God to bless them. That's the only legal prayer. And I thought, gosh, we've got to learn how to do this stuff. This is so hard. And so we began to explore those kinds of things. What I want to do today is, oh, we got a verse up there, is uh, kind of start with the idea that I had to come to grips with the understanding of which gospel I was bringing. Now, how many gospels are there? Right, okay. In the Bible, how many perceptions of the gospel are there? I would say there's five. John had his perception of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Luke's second perception after the resurrection, the thing we call the book of Acts. That's another perception of how the gospel goes. But if you had asked me when I went there what, was, what gospel was I was bringing, I would say in general the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I would say the right answer. You guys would be proud of me. It would be good. But in my heart, I'm not sure I knew what I meant. <laughs> and so my perception really was not a kingdom. I didn't ever learn about a kingdom in seminary. We learned about church. But the kingdom and the church aren't always the same. And I found out if I was to bring the gospel of the kingdom, I've got to go back to kind of square one and start figuring out what actually is the gospel of the kingdom. Are you guys kingdom people? Do you think naturally in the kingdom? Good, good. I didn't get that for a while. So let's go to the first. Uh, oh, let's see. Does this, is this the kingdom that you guys bring here? So he went through all Galilee, teaching in our synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Is that what we experienced? That, that wasn't actually my experience. So I was intimidated by this. I was so glad in seminary when we got to the class where they said this actually doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Good, that makes it easier. You know what I mean? They offered the gospel of abundant life. And if I was really honest, I would have to admit I'm not sure I had that. I'm not sure it was actually abundant. I'm more like I was the gospel of survival. I was surviving. But I really wasn't living abundantly. So let's go to the first slide. I don't have a clicker here, so we'll have to ask for the slides to be presented. This was the foundation of my worldview, even though I didn't really know what I thought this. It became clear later on. I think it was all based on knowledge. I have a degree in philosophy, seminary, so it's kind of understandable. But it really does define, as a missionary, what I thought my job was. I'm going to go for people who don't know something I know. Their problem is fundamentally knowledge-based, meaning they're sinners, they're separated from God, they don't know that. I'm coming to bring them a message, the information that they need to know to get saved. That's kind of what my mindset was. On knowledge, this is what we added. Let's go to the next one. Let's do the next two or three others. So then we would get really active and get busy on top of what we knew. And then on top of that, if we could stretch it and make exaggeration and call the activity growing so we could do more and better stuff, that's why we tend to count everything, I might be able to call that success. So that was kind of un informally, I think it's kind of an Americanization. You know, let's, let's understand, let's get busy, let's grow, and let's be successful. Does that make sense? Anybody? So then the Lord introduced to me a problem that, that, that knowledge wasn't really a good foundation to start off of. That it wasn't the way, it wasn't where he lived. He didn't live really with that as a foundation. 
Something was more important to knowledge, to, more important than knowledge to him. Do you, do you know what that was? Anybody guess? I, I struggle with certain things, uh, like in my life, uh, like mm, exercise. I know that I should exercise. And when I'm in a place long enough, I get down to a pattern of swimming uh, 2,500 meters a day. And I like that, but it, my schedule makes it hard to do. I know I need to swim 2,500 meters a day to stay healthy if I can. Does that matter? It actually doesn't matter. Go ahead and do the next slide. More important than knowledge is obedience. <laughs> if I don't go do it, it makes no difference whatsoever that I know I ought to. As a matter of fact, I'd rather not know I should do it because now I've become uncomfortable that I'm not doing it. You know what I mean? So it's also true in the kingdom. It almost makes no difference what you know. It only matters what you do. There's a very interesting thing. Um, when I was in Oak Ridge, Dave lured me into a men's breakfast thing at Shoney's. I don't know if he remembers that. And so it was on one morning a week, and there was another group on another morning, and four groups before long would meet at Shoney's. We called it Shoney's Bible Church at that time. And uh, these guys got stubborn and decided they wanted to memorize some scripture. And so we started, you know, working on scripture, memorizing scripture. And I got suckered into all four groups. And so I was under a huge load. Before that was over, I think we memorized Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, and most of Romans. Does that sound familiar? So then in China, the Lord speaks to me and he goes, <laughs> Now, when I say he speaks, he's, it's happening in my heart. It's not happening in my ears because he doesn't sit on my shoulders. But he said, I noticed you like Paul's writings a lot more than you like mine. Lord, what are you talking about? He says, well, you never bothered memorizing anything I said. You just memorized what Paul said. Whoa, I am so busted. Lord, what do you want me to do? And he goes, I said, you're right. He said, well, how about memorizing the Sermon on the Mount? So I memorized the Sermon on the Mount overseas in China. And that's when I began to see so many things that I was missing. And this was one of them. Obedience is really important. What is the curriculum of the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? Okay. The, the curriculum of the Great Commission is to teach people to... See, when I would get to that phrase, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching... When I hit the word teaching, do you know what my mind went to? Teaching scripture. Because I had some memorized. That was okay for me to do. And I would always run to Ephesians and those passages, you know, that I could really do that stuff. That's not what the scripture says. It doesn't say teach scripture. It says teach them to obey. All I have commanded you. So the actual curriculum of the Great Commission is obedience. And so I got to thinking, I wonder what he means. What did he command? And so I got into the Sermon on the Mount, and I found 31 commands that he gives us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. I think altogether there's only about 50 or so in the other Gospels. Serious commands like, don't worry. No, no, you're doing it again. <laughs> I told you not to do that. Quit it. Don't worry. It's a command. Stop it. Stop it right now. So I realized if I would focus on those things that he really wanted me to do that I could actually do, my spiritual life began to get healthier than it had been before. 
On one Thanksgiving over there, a very successful American businessman invited 48 foreign guests to a Thanksgiving dinner at a hotel. He paid for everything. It was really nice. But that night I went home and I opened the scripture and I came across the passage that told me how to have a banquet. Do you remember that? I am supposed to do what when I have a banquet like that? What kind of people should I go find? I should go find the people who can't invite me back, the crippled, the poor, the lame, those kinds of things. And I got to thinking, there it is again. I've taught this passage 20 times and never once done it. I just hadn't done it. So embarrassing. And so I went to work the next day, and I got to my friend, Chuen Kai, who was our HR manager, and I said, hey, Chuen Kai, have you ever done this? He goes, nope. I go, you want to? Yeah, let's do it. And so two nights later, we filled up the Singapore Hotel restaurant. We just took it over, and we filled it with 28 of our friends off the street, beggars and uh, disabled people, many that we had already hired in the company. We had a ball. We just said, feed them until they can't walk. Just do it right. It was so good. It was fun. But I just began to see again, it isn't what I know. It is what I do that matters. So knowledge as a foundation doesn't provide for me the kind of real significant thing I need. Actually, obedience is more important, but obedience is a bad starting place too. More important, obedience turns out to be something else that the Lord showed me. Can we go to the next slide? So this is, to me now, the offer of the gospel. So if you were to ask me, what gospel do you bring? I want to be bringing the gospel of the life of God. His very life is what we have available. It's what we offer. It's what I want them to see in me. It involves knowledge. It involves obedience. But it's much more than both of those things. Obedience is a difficult destination. To me now, obedience, like loving my enemies, like we had... We had guys that stole samples off of our desk and then made uh, companies that competed with us. How would you feel about that? That's nasty. So what does God say to do? So we prayed that God would make our companies really successful because that's what we were told to do. What are you supposed to do in Scripture if someone curses you? Bless him. Yeah. Do you know that's not using bad words in the Bible? He's not saying, you know, blankety blank you. Uh, we had six witches in the community where our workers lived that would curse me with witch curses. Those are powerful curses. Some people die when that happens. So I read that verse bless those who curse you. <laughs> now I got somebody really cursing me. You got to, what do you do with this? You know? I didn't have that class at seminary. <laughs> got to figure this out. So then you read it in Scripture, and then you got to decide what are you going to do. So I got my team together, my employees. And I said, hey, I, got, I want you guys to help me do this, would you? Let's just bless these witches. They knew where the houses were. So they would go for me at 5 in the morning and circle the house and sing and just offer blessings to the witches who were cursing us. Because that's what Scripture says to do, Right? And so we began to see that actually obeying Scripture would bring something that we began to experience as life. This very experience of God being with us in the midst of our obeying what he said to do. Gosh, it was so exciting. It was so fun. It was so interesting. It's led us into being able to be involved with uh, over 700 orphans with disabilities 
that we were able to get out of orphanages and into foster care, and 80% would get adopted, many of them overseas. And a whole bunch of beggars came in off the street and got jobs. They never lasted more than one week before becoming Christians within the family, within the, the company. It was just this fantastic thing that we began to see by actually stepping out into it. So I want to give a couple of specific illustrations where this happened. And uh, let's click on through the slides. Another one. When, when you start with knowledge, you know what you do? Go ahead and click the next four. The first thing you do is you emphasize on study and learning and classes. This really fit in well with my seminary and philosophy background. The activity part became just being busy. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys. The growth part became a part where I just was sort of exaggerate things and compare myself with other people to see if who was doing more or better or, or whatever. And then the idea of it all was to be, quote, successful. That was kind of my worldview when I went over there. Okay, let's go to the next one. When obedience became the focus, and uh, next four. Then the emphasis became sort of on, on the rules, on what I'm supposed to do, the behavior kind of thing. The knowledge became an emphasis on the knowledge of the rules, and then the activity, do you know what the activity became? Sort of judgmental. Kind of, I ended up judging people who weren't keeping the rules as well as I was. And then the compare, and the growth was comparing and exaggerating, and it, now success became behavior-based. I, I went to a number of men's groups. They call them accountability groups. Do you guys know what accountability groups are? In my case, this may not be your experience, but in my case, I went one year, it was like, I went one year and then five years later I went again, and the guys were stuck in the same place. They were like, holding each other accountable as like a posses or sheriffs or something, you know, because they're prone to mess up. And they're trying to get together to get encouragement so they don't make mistakes. You know, look at whatever they're not supposed to look at, that sort of thing. And after five years, they hadn't made no progress. <laughs> they were stuck in the same places. They were still doing the same things. I'm thinking, hmm, I don't think it's working for you guys. So let's go to the next one. Uh, if the focus or the foundation is on the life of God, then the emphasis now becomes his, his very life, the, the life of my friend, the life of God. That's what really I want to be founding all of this stuff on. And the emphasis of obedience is what makes him happy. I want to do what makes him happy. That's, that's all I want to do. And then the emphasis on how to make him happy then the activity becomes something new. It's becoming a kind of partnering with him. How do we do things together? Because that's what he wants. He already told me I can't do anything apart from him that's going to be helpful. So how much should we do apart from him? <laughs> None. Nothing. Nothing makes sense. It all should be done with him, and that's something I really hadn't learned how to do either, so I had to kind of start figuring this thing out. Then growth becomes doing bigger and bigger projects together, and success now becomes my friend's kingdom actually comes. There is kingdom evidence that something is happening here that proves he's involved. So let's go to the next one. So here's a project that gave me a problem. We got a new customer that wanted us to produce... You know what beveled glass door windows are? Door lights is what they're called. 
So the inside the door and on the side lights and over the top, this company manufactured those and then put them between two pieces of clear glass and, and insulated them. And they wanted us to manufacture for them, but their requirement was to use something called lean manufacturing. Anybody ever heard of lean manufacturing? Any manufacturing people? Probably not so much. Good, good, good. So lean manufacturing has some unusual requirements. And one is you don't want to do things in groups. You want to do things one at a time. So if we made one of these panels, in this particular task, we had to dry it in an oven for 12 hours before we could seal it up. So I tried to buy an oven, and you couldn't buy an oven that would allow you to put one panel in at a time. Every other factory in the world would put a whole bunch of these panels on carts, put the carts into a big room, and heat the big room as an oven. But Lean says, no, you finish one, you heat one, you, you seal it, and you package it. You get one item going through the line as fast as possible. So I'm now thinking as a steward, the production line belongs to the Lord. I'm just trying to steward it for him. We need this oven, so I go to him with a request. Lord, you need a design. So let's go to the next slide. And this is kind of getting in touch with his life. One after that. And you say to him, actually, friend, it's not so much I need an oven, but you need an oven for your company. And this oven, uh, he gave me a design for it, and it ended up being 40 feet long. So it was about, well, it seemed like it was about as wide as the church is, and about 12 feet tall, about four or five feet wide. So he asked me this. Go to the next one. This is now a function of obedience. He says, if I give you a design, what are you going to do with it? Will you build it? That's what obedience looks like in a case like this. And I had to decide. Would I waste money on a design that might not work? And so I go, yes, I'll do it. I decide. I, we had had enough record together. I thought, he's fun to work with. He had already given me a bunch of designs. So yeah, I'll do it. So then he gives me the designs. Next slide. This is where the knowledge is, the knowledge of how do you do this thing? How do you actually design and build this? So I'd wake up in the morning with pictures in my mind. Anybody ever wake up with pictures? Yeah, I wake up and I get to see it. Sometimes the process, sometimes the picture, you know, that kind of thing. And so I began to draw it out, making little silly sketches of uh, this, I think, how it needs to go. And there's a metal part on the inside and a wooden part on the outside. And I gave it to one of my guys with a good computer skills. And he brings this thing back to me. Now it's in nice, pretty format. But it's got 17 doors and windows in it. I gave him a design with two. So I said, Xiao Chen, how come this thing grew 15 doors? And he started looking really embarrassed and sheepish. He goes, Bosh, you, you've never designed an oven before. This thing is really long. We don't think it'll work. And when it doesn't work, we've got to be able to get in and fix things on the inside. So we added 15 different doors so we could get into <laughs> to fix your mistakes. I go, Lord, these guys don't think your design is going to work. What do you want to do about it? And the Lord said, why don't you build the metal structure on the inside, let them see it operating, and then you can put the box on the outside later after they're convinced. So we did that, and it, it was great. And so the activity became actually doing the work of building this oven. Let's go to the next one. And after that, next slide. This is a bigger project than anything we'd made up today. And after that, 
we got inspected. So the customer wouldn't give us orders until they came and he inspected this production line. And he got to the oven. He spent 30 minutes inspecting the oven. He walked around and around, looked at it, looked inside, scratched his head, and he came over and he finally said, hey, Phil, where would you get your doctorate? I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got a doctorate in engineering, right? I said, not actually. Why would you say that? And he goes, well, I've got 20 engineers working for me. I gave them a project like this, and they couldn't do anything this elegant. So I'm assuming you're better educated than they are. I thought, huh, that's fascinating. Then he said, how much did yours cost you to make? I go, well, gosh, I don't know, but I'll find out. How much did yours cost you, Dave? He said, $126,000. So I find out about hours and I come back and I say, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave, but ours cost 5000 And so that's when I began to realize what's going on. And so I had to confess, hey, Dave, wait a minute, wait, wait. I've got this friend, and I asked him for a design. What you're seeing is actually not my intelligence, it's his intelligence. You're seeing the effect of my friend. He's really smart. I don't know if he has a doctorate or not, but I think he could cover that base if he needed to. And that was the first time I began to actually see this life of God thing. If we will obey, if we'll trust his understanding of how to do things, if we'll step into it, take the risk, spend the money or spend the time, we will begin to see him show up. And it will be really, really a beautiful thing. Okay, let's do another one. This problem was uh, a different production line. We sold outdoor tabletops that went into Home Depot. They went through a particular marketing company, but we, the, the Lord gave us a design for that, and we invented the product with him and sold into the U.S. market. At the same time, my board of directors thought, I'm getting old. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> and why don't we have a plan in place so that you could be replaced if you needed to be replaced? So we hired a couple of Americans to go run, begin to learn how to run the company. One had been in China 20 years managing factories. The other had a degree in manufacturing from a university in Seattle. And both were there with missionary hearts. Their intent was to bring the gospel. And so they were going to work with me. They ended up taking over this particular production line. It was one of several that we had. And they asked me if I would not be around because when I show up, it confuses who the lead is. I said, yeah, I understand that, so I'll stay away. The Lord had given me a design for the production line, and we had built it. And then I just blessed them, handed it off. And the season was six months really, really busy, and then six months waiting to design new products and start the next season. So you're busy, and then you're not busy. And so after the busy part finished up and we shipped everything, I'd come by, and I know the customers there. We have one major customer, well, really for Home Depot. And I asked them how... How did the season go? He goes, really well. We only had 8,000 products that entered the market the first year. It was a bit more than we thought, and there were fewer defects. It was really good. And then he said, I said, well, what about next year then? Because I had just found out we had lost well over a million dollars. These guys had not been managed well, and they had just, money just leaked out. And it was a big deal because we had never lost money like that before. And I'm trying to trust these guys as my replacement, but it's getting kind of hard, you know, and I'm seeing stuff happen. I looked at the production line, and it was 100% trashed. These tabletops were made out of 
concrete and fiberglass. Glass reinforced cement is what it is. Glass reinforced concrete. And uh, so you could do amazing things with them. The British have been putting panels on the outside of the high-rise buildings for 60 years with this stuff. So we just made it beautiful and turned it into a tabletop that could handle the weather. If you put it outside, that was kind of the basic deal. But because it had cement, they got cement on the floor. There's three inches of cement over everything. All the machines had stopped working. And so I'm asking this customer, next year, what do you think? He goes, next year, we think 42,000 tables is what we're going to need. And I'm thinking, okay, you've got to stay with us because that will give us a chance to dig out of the hole that we're in. I said, would you then leave the orders with us? And he says, Bill, look around. Could you do five times more tables with this operation? And I thought, I could never. I, no, it's not possible. And I said, would you give me two months to fix it? And he goes, because you invented the product and you're the only ones doing it, I'll give you two months during that slow period. So I go to my general manager and I say, on a scale of one to ten, where do you think we are? He said, maybe a three. And then I go to the production manager. He says, between a one and a two. I'm thinking, guys, you've had this production line for a year. That's all you got out of it. This is serious. I said, well, I talked to our customer and he's going to leave us and go to someone else and we're going to go bankrupt. But we got eight weeks to fix it. So we got to really turn this thing around and produce, you know, prove to him that we could actually solve this problem and get this stuff made. About a week later, guess what happened? They both resigned. Now we're down to seven weeks left. I'm stuck at this, with this huge mess. Now, in my old days of thinking, I'm trying to serve God with my business. It's my company. It, whose problem is it? It'd be my problem. Under this newer way of thinking that I'm just a steward and not the owner, I'm telling you, it really has some advantages to it. And so I make my report. I go, Lord, did you see that? These guys just bailed on you. What do you want to do? And I said, and then he said, well, do you want to fix it? I go, fix it? You're not playing fair. You know I want to fix it. But they just left. He goes, it's okay. It's okay. Lord, they left. It's okay. I'm just discipling them. Lord, you're trying to disciple them and they're abandoning ship. And then he said, Bill, tell me how many times you got it right the first time around the block. And I thought, Oh, I know exactly what they're going through. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> so the Lord is after them. They're running. They cannot hide. He's going to get them someplace else. And so I just had all this compassion for them because I could feel what the Lord is trying to do. And I know that feeling of running away. You guys know that feeling of running away from the Lord when he's trying to push you into something? Yeah, that's <laughs> great. So I said, okay, but what about the company? I've got no money and I've got no ideas. The next day, I get a phone call from a Chinese guy born in our city, but now living in the States, a believer. And he says, Bill, I think we're supposed to have breakfast. At breakfast, he says, I think I'm supposed to help you. Really? Yeah, I'm hearing something about a production line, a new production line. Does that make any sense to you? And in my heart, I'm thinking, I've got to have $100,000 or we can't get this thing off the ground. He said, would $200,000 help you? I feel like I'm supposed to make that available, be an investment or a loan or whatever, interest-free loan, whatever you want. And so I go, okay, Lord, <laughs> I got it, I got it. This is what we mean by the life of God showing up. So I got this problem, he comes with a solution. And then the next day I began to wake up with more pictures, ideas, machines, you know, 
just seeing how things would work, seeing how they could fit together and accomplish this thing. And I would draw them out. I drew out like 1,200 individual drawings in the next two weeks. So we go try to get this machinery built or ordered and delivered, and we get the supplier to respond, and they say, yes, we can actually build all this stuff. Well, when could you deliver it? In nine months. Lord, you got another problem. <laughs> they can't build your machines in time. What do you want to do? And he said, why don't you order the components of the machines and build them yourself? I thought, gosh, you are so smart. That's a great idea. And so we ordered the parts, and we brought them in. We assembled the entire production line, and we reduced the floor space to 40% of what it was before. We went from 20,000 square feet to about 8,000. The number of workers from 100 to 50, and we increased the output 400%. Right? So what have I still got to deal with? Do you remember? Over a million dollars in losses. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's great, Lord. We got this done. We did the next season. The customer's delighted. We're really setting new standards in the U.S. market. This is all really great. But I'm tired, and I'm not sure we're going to ever dig out of that hole. And then I got a call from a Chinese company that wanted to buy my technology. We got seven patents on the designs that he gave that way. And so this company wanted that production line, lock, stock, and barrel. Going to come, leave it right in our building, keep all of the employees, and just buy it and run it. And I'm thinking, I, I, that seems right. I, th I think it's good for me to be able to focus on other things. Negotiation. I hate negotiation. I couldn't even price our products because I would feel guilty if I made profit. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. It's called a spirit of poverty. So in the Christian realm, we got two negatives. One is this, uh, what did you call it? The, where you can get whatever you want. You know, it's like the, the Christian life is all about you receiving stuff. You know, what's that called? Prosperity. Yeah, prosperity thing. Yeah, that's no good. But the other side is no good either, where I don't get to have anything because being poor is being spiritual. And so I had read that one of the ways God talks to you is with images and pictures. So pay attention to your images and pictures. And I knew what was coming. This guy, this company, they had $400 million in cash in the bank. They like to compare. You know, I didn't have much in the bank. And so you're sitting across from them at a dinner, and they're hinting about how much money they got. And so my technique on them is, well, how much are you going to have in 400 years? <laughs> Because they never think eternally. They said, yeah, you got $400 million now, but how much are you going to be able to take with you? You know, you know the idea that you can't take it with you? Do you know that's not true and that's not biblical? You're not, you're supposed to take it with you. There's a command that says, make for yourselves, it literally says, bags of money in heaven. Treasures is the way we usually translate it. But we're actually told to, to create treasures. You know what a telegraphic transfer is? It's where one bank will telegraphically transfer money to another bank. You know, it's the way money gets moved around. They don't actually send cash. They, they do it electronically. So we're supposed to telegraphically transfer our money to heaven. And then we get to keep it. We're actually supposed to do that. So if we invest it in the kingdom, it actually accrues to our account. And that's a good thing. But you've got to let it go now to invest it in the kingdom. It's kind of fun. Anyway, so I know this meeting is going to be a negotiation I'm really nervous. I always hire people, but I can't find somebody to do it for me. 
It's going to be a big building where the, big, the table will be longer than a pew. There'll be four or five of them on one side and little old me on the other side. And in my mind, I'm thinking I could maybe ask for $100,000 at the most. Because for $100,000, they'll just steal all your workers. They're very predatory. You couldn't add, they wouldn't be willing to pay more than that. And that's not going to pay my debt, but I still think it's what I'm supposed to do. Very uncomfortable. Big five-star hotel. Meeting is on Saturday morning. So I fly up Friday night. And I wake up at three, no, I wake up at five in the morning. And I have a picture in my mind of a day in my life as a kid, maybe 13 years old. You know where Pine Valley Elementary School is? Used to be an elementary school. It was a scene of me walking through the snow in the Pine Valley playground. And a line was in the snow right next to my little footprints. And I remember that it was a Saturday morning. I was going to my accordion lesson, but I couldn't lift the accordion out of the snow, so it was just dragging in the snow. That's back when we used to have deep snows all the time. 20 inches snows were not unknown. The impression was I was one of seven kids, number two. Our family, my dad was good, but we didn't have much money. Seven kids in a two-bedroom house, you know, the typical Oak Ridge story. Dig out the basement, put five boys downstairs, and don't look very often at what they do. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that happened was I never got good at the accordion lessons. I was the only one that got $5 a month for music lessons. And I squandered it. It never worked out. So am I a person that deserves money? No. I don't deserve it, and if I get it, I'll mess it up. That became my identity. So what you do when you become aware of your identity is to you break it. I break my agreement with his identity that my dad is poor and that whatever he gives me, I'm going to mess up. And I accept the actual identity. My, my new dad is really not poor, and if I stay close to him, I won't mess it up. That's who I am. At 7 o'clock, I heard the Lord say, try for $1.5 million. <laughs> and I did what I just did. I laughed out loud. $1.5 million. They would never do that. And I thought, oh, I love it when it gets to this point. Because if I do it and it doesn't work out, it is so your fault. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, this is crazy. These guys will never pay that for this, for this production line. And so I go to the meeting at 9, and it's just like what I think, big table, guys dressed up, a lot of power. Me on the other side. Good morning, Mr. Joe. Good morning, gentlemen. We want to buy your production line. Yes, I know. How much do you want for it? Well, I have to have $1.8 million. Mr. Joe, that is a lot of money. Well, yes, it is, but it's worth every penny. It's the only technology that exists in the world. The U.S. market is crying for it. We're the only family that can produce it. It's worth every single penny. And I almost turned around and said, who in the world showed up in this room? That was not me. And they go, well, can you give us a discount? I knew they would ask for a discount, so I got my little phone out, did a calculator thing, you know. Nope, 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 nope. Got to have that. Nope, can't, nope, nope. 1.6. Done. In five minutes, we sold that line for enough money to pay off all the debt that it accumulated. That's called the life of God. 
We hit problems, we take the problem to him, we ask for his solution, and he walks us through it. And in the process, we have to come to grips with obeying. And then understanding his perception on how to solve it. And in the end, it's his actual presence that shows up and is over and over and over again what we get to experience. And that's what the kingdom is actually supposed to be looking like. So every day in Oak Ridge, all of you are representatives of the kingdom. And you run into this, and you run into that. You run into this, and you run into that. And the invitation is always the same from him. Let's do this together. This is much more fun if we do it together. Let me have my part, and you figure out your part. We'll do it together, and let's watch what happens. So the Christian life to me is becoming... As I get older and starting to figure out more of it, simpler and easier than I ever thought it was because it depends less and less on me. And that, have you noticed the distance between here and here? You'll get something here and you think you got it. It doesn't count. It only counts when it gets here. It's only when you live it out that you actually have it. And I found I get maybe 10 to 20 years between here and here. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to love my enemies. I know I am. I know I am. I know I am. Well, why aren't you doing it? Well, it hasn't landed here yet. Quit worrying. Stop it. Quit worrying. How many know you're not supposed to worry? How many know you're not supposed to complain? How many don't worry and don't complain? <laughs> it's hilarious. But that's the kingdom. That's the way we practice it. We're not going to make big strides. Don't worry about big strides. Don't try for that. Just get the next 10 minutes right. It's just the next 10 minutes. Just the next 10 minutes. 10 minutes down the road, forget about this 10 minutes and do the next 10 minutes. How is it that we hear from him, that we partner with him, that we see him in the situations that we're facing to bring those elements of the kingdom, love, joy, peace, patience, God, all of that stuff that resonates. That, because, see, in the end, when I went overseas as a missionary and I thought people what needed what I could tell them, what I could teach them, it's not what they needed, really. They needed to see it. They needed to see it. And your neighbors, your workmates, the people in your lives, your relatives, they don't need to know more about it, probably. They need to see it. Because when they see it, it's irresistible. When they see it, they remember there's something else going on here. One of the businesses the Lord asked me to give away, since I was stewarding it, the way he phrased it was, Bill, you stewarded this company well for 20-something years. Let's let Ubois steward it for a while. And so I just gave it to him. Actually, I had to pay $200,000 to buy the contracts out and then give it to him. So I gave it to him. And then I didn't go back there for over four years. And then he invited me to dinner with 60-something of the old employees. So four years had gone by, and we went to dinner, kind of a, a buffet thing. And a new girl comes up and sits next to me, and she says something that really caught me off guard. She goes, you don't know me, but I want to know you. And I said, really? I'm, I'm okay with that. What, why do you want to get to know me? She says, you don't know this, but every single week, you've been gone for four years, but every single week these people talk about how much you love them. 
that. That doesn't feel right. I don't think I did that. And then I realized, oh, they're confusing me with my friend again. <laughs> Jesus was loving them. He happened to be borrowing my mouth or my hands or my eyes or something to manifest his love to them. They experienced him and they remember him. The people in your lives will recognize Jesus in you. How would you like to live a life such that four years after you moved out of the neighborhood, people still talked about how much you loved that neighborhood or the company or your relatives? Or Wouldn't that be phenomenal? Doesn't that feel like the kingdom, though? Doesn't that feel like Jesus was in that kind of a thing? It's such good news. It's so great. So my encouragement to you is the kingdom is nearer than you think. I have a little expression that I used to say. You guys know about Narnia? My expression was, Narnia is closer than you think. Because we're always on the edge of entering that other realm, that other world where magic happens through, through Jesus, through his showing up. It's where it's wonderful. And nothing goes according to the normal rules that we think. We're always on the edge. You can poke through it easier than you think. So the kingdom is closer than you think, and it's much better, and it's easier and simpler to activate it than you probably think. So that's my encouragement, is to explore it, keep going. It's absolutely marvelous. And there's nothing that you face that will be too big for him to show up and get you through it. So Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for a couple little stories of where you showed up and gave designs for the problems that we face. Mm. And now I just lift up every person here and everything they struggle with, every challenge they have, every perception of inadequacy. And we bring it to you. And we do declare that you don't have those same issues. You're not inadequate for anything. You're an absolutely marvelous friend. And because you've told us what you're up to, you brought us into your world and into your kingdom and into your development of that, you then can call us friends if we're willing and able to partner with you. So we thank you so much that this is the way you built this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.